and welcome to another edition of the Security Ledger podcast. I'm your host, Paul Roberts, editor at the Security Ledger. We're wrapping up another eventful week in the security world. And as we're wont to do here at Security Ledger, we've asked duo security evangelist Mark Stanislav in to give us his thoughts on the news of the week. Mark, welcome back to the Security Ledger podcast. Thanks for having me back, Paul. Appreciate it. Well, we love having you. Let's start with eBay. Uh, this uh, was a story that started last week with a, a announcement from them that there had been a, uh, a breach uh, within their organization, some account takeovers for, uh, for staff within eBay, and that had led to the compromise uh, or the exposure of information on pretty much all their users, around 145 million active accounts. This is uh, seems to be yet another case where we've got a, a, a problem with weak authentication or, or phishing attacks that lead to account takeovers. And uh, in this case, it took them a while to figure it out. You know, we're no stranger to seeing these kinds of things happening. Um, obviously, when it came to disclosure, uh, it looks like it had had a bit, of, a bit of a long tail from the point where they kind of knew something was wrong to getting to the point where they notified customers. Uh, what day uh, was the eBay uh, breach announced by eBay last week? I think week? that was Wednesday of last week where where they actually disclosed it. Yeah, yeah, and, I, and you know, we're, we're recording this on a, uh, the Thursday after. I actually just got my notice yesterday. So it took a full calendar week from the time they said that, hey, wow. we're going to tell people that this is a problem to me actually getting my notice yeah. in, uh, in email yesterday. Right. And I, I had snarked about that on Twitter, as did some other folks, um, it, you know, it was the the news came out really first <clears throat> in the media, and then eBay did issue a statement on kind of you know PR Newswire and these kind of business wires, um, and but that was it for a you know a, a couple days. There, if you were to visit uh, their website on the day that they announced this breach, there was no indication that anything was amiss. Uh, and in fact, if you logged into your account. Uh, there was no, in you know, uh, directions to change your password, a notification that there had been a security breach. You would be uh, certainly not unusual if you were to think uh, that nothing had gone on. Um, which, which, I, which, you know, I find really interesting, especially post Heartbleed. Um, I think one big success across, you know, not just information security but technology was the visibility that most organizations gave to their end users about Heartbleed. So in terms of fire drills, I think a lot of businesses learned what it takes to have an issue, even if it's not necessarily their issue only, and, you know, put together, you know, a coherent PR strategy and, and, and disclosure and information to customers to tell them where they stand in, in terms of risk. And coming so close to that after uh, Heartbleed, I'm surprised eBay didn't have a little bit more um, you know, speed and also, ver- you know, verbosity in terms of what they are actually presenting to to end users. They seemed a little befuddled, and they seemed to read the situation as well. You know, the passwords were encrypted, and and we don't have any information that you know there have been user accounts compromised, and therefore we can uh, kind of soft pedal this. And I think you know, obviously, most people would have said, look, given the size of the breach and also your visibility as a company and the types of information people are entrusting to you, putting too much uh, emphasis on the fact that you don't believe that anything malicious has happened as a result of this is probably not wise. <laughs> it's, it's always been a bit of a infosec, you know, faux pas when people say encrypted when they really mean, you know, hashed or hashed and salted or some other 
method of storing passwords securely. Right. And that, that wasn't such a big deal until Adobe actually did encrypt their passwords, and we saw what the fallout of that was. So quite frankly, I think I saw more people talking about the fact that eBay used the phrase, you know, encrypted passwords rather than the fact that 145 million you know, active users' credentials may have been stolen. It was, more, it was, it was that little you know, fine-grained point is what everyone hung up on, got hung up on in the InfoSec community. So again, it's, just, it, it's not easy, but you know, eBay is a big enough company, have enough resources that I really wish they had ran some of that language by a couple tr- you know, trusted parties in the InfoSec community to say, how does this read to you? What do you think the fallout will be if we publish this? Because uh, I think they would have gotten some good feedback. You guys do two-factor authentication. Is there a argument here about the need for stronger user credentials? The tricky part there is, without knowing more details, um, you know the the initial compromise, whatever got the attacker in a position where they could start stealing data. Uh, that initial compromise may have been on the least interesting least security focused website. Maybe it didn't have authentication. It could have just been a website with data and maybe there was SQL injection in there. And from there, the attacker could have then found another target and moved laterally. Um, we, we do know that some credentials were used as eBay has told us that. We just don't necessarily know when those credentials were used, if it was the first part or the last part or the middle part. Um, but certainly, at one thing that we really talk about uh, security and one of the things we see as the biggest benefits of two-factor isn't necessarily just perimeter level security keeping bad guys out a lot of bad guys get in through very creative ways once they're in though stopping that lateral movement between a network by not allowing stolen credentials uh to you know to be utilized in in a meaningful way that really is impactful and really slows attackers down and maybe to the point where they're trying so many things to get around your two-factor implementation that Maybe your your you know uh, IDS has a chance. Maybe your uh, of you know event handler uh, people that you have on your your SOC team. Maybe they have a chance to actually notice some weird traffic. Oftentimes, attackers move too quick, and when two factors introduced, we we definitely know that it will slow attackers down at some point, and maybe that's enough of a point to uh, you know to stop the attack in progress. Other news this week, uh, a couple big announcements from Apple. Obviously, the acquisition of Beats, the uh, music streaming and uh, headphone company, uh, which is, you know, brings Dr. Dre into the Apple fold. Uh, <laughs> I never thought you'd say that on a podcast. I, know, you, I, yeah. didn't, I didn't know that Dre would be making it onto the Security Ledger podcast, but there you go. <laughs> uh, the more interesting announcement from, from Security Ledger, and I'm, I'm sure your standpoint is uh, Apple's uh, you know, reports that uh, Apple is planning on making an entry into the home automation uh, market. Um, it's not totally clear yet how, but potentially some kind of a gateway device or or consumer focused products uh, in the in the home automation sector. You've done a tremendous amount of work as a security researcher uh, and also evangelist, talking about you know vulnerabilities and, and the need for security in in that space. Uh, I'd be interested in your thoughts on what you think Apple will bring to the table if they uh, if they get in. Well, you know, in, in terms of the consumer electronics space, uh, I think Belkin and D-Link are two good examples of kind of the home automation. Um, they each have you know their own Wi-Fi enabled plugs and similar light switches. Uh, unfortunately, both the Belkin uh, Wemo product and then uh, D-Link's own, I think, relatively recent uh, foray into the the market with their own Wi-Fi-enabled plugs. Both of those devices have just been torn apart by researchers. Uh, I mean, really, really 
comprehensive compromising. What I'm hoping this will bring is Apple has a very, very mature security model. Um, you know, for sure, things like GoToFail have happened. But overall, if you look at historically at Apple and you know, the, the OS X, Steve Jobs around 2 age, they've done a really great job at, at security overall. And I'm hoping, uh, and, and this isn't co- typical Apple, but we'll see about the Tim Cook era of Apple. I'm hoping what they do is they actually do have some sort of open standard, open protocol, um, wherein their accessory manufacturers that partner with them so closely will then be able to leverage their technology, have a, have a little bit more of the physical presence, you know, so like building the, the circuit boards, building, you know, the things that click and on and off to make light switches work. But perhaps Apple will provide some of the software. And I don't know if that's super far off because we have seen like CarPlay, for instance, they're basically saying, hey, we have this effectively a platform that we want car manufacturers to leverage. We'll give you a lot of the moving pieces uh, in terms of software. You give us the moving pieces in terms of hardware, and we'll play nicely. I think that would be very beneficial to the market and, and move the IoT market ahead in terms of not just you know end-user convenience, which is, of course, the number one reason why this is all happening, but the security aspect where Apple will certainly do it, I think, better than most of the consumer electronic organizations out there and hopefully set a higher watermark than that currently exists because we have seen, uh, I would say, too many vulnerabilities in this space too soon. And maybe Apple will mature it a little bit faster than if they weren't involved or Google for that matter. Yeah, I mean, it seems like there's a certain land rush uh, aspect to this, uh, to, to many of these products, even from uh, large and sophisticated companies. You know, Security Ledger reported this week on uh, a firmware update from LG for its smart TVs that basically kind of retroactively asked permission for a whole range of viewer monitoring, uh, you know, what you watch, how long you watch it, your interactions with the device. Um, mm-hmm. as, as part of an updated terms of service, which is, you know, okay. Uh, but then basically, if you don't agree to that, they sort of disable the smart features of your of your smart TV. So after you've acquired it, and, and they basically did that in lieu of what they used to have, which was an opt-in checkbox. You know, you look at that and you're like, you know, no, you know, that's just not, that's not the way things are going to go. <laughs> but maybe they are. I don't know. I mean, it, it does seem like we're, it's early days here and companies are recognize the value of of these devices to report back not only on their operation but also on what their customers are doing but they're kind of ham-fisted in the way that they're going about trying to get that data yeah it's it's tough i mean privacy tech privacy especially is a really slow and cumbersome process for both the the service providers or manufacturers or whomever is trying to collect data and the consumers that want to leverage that technology often for free because a lot of the times that the privacy of data is so concerning is because that data then will be turned around and sold to someone to you know, satisfy why you got that service for free in the first place. Um, if you look at Facebook, I think a great example they're, you know, what, 12, I don't know, 12, 13 years old or something at this point, uh, which is terrifying in some ways. Um, yeah, that is kind of terrifying to hear you say that. <laughs> Again, great people, smart staff, but it's been a long and hard and arduous road for them to appease, the, you know, the billion people or whatever they have of, right. of customers. And, and so in consumer electronics space, 
they're going through the same growing pains. I think it's acceptable. Sure, whether it's LG or Samsung or any of these other companies, um, everyone's going to think that they have solved the problem for themselves. And sometimes you forget about the consumer when you're solving problems for yourselves. Apple is another example where they've had privacy concerns, and, and Google certainly uh, has had many, many privacy concerns. I don't think it's an IoT problem. I do think the smart type of technologies because they will have to have a service backing them if you want that service you're going to have to pay and if you're not going to pay money you're you're going to pay you're going to pay data um so it's it's going to be a long road but i'm I, you know i'm i'm all for seeing people try to iterate and come up with the the way they think is going to work for the comp their you know their organization consumers ultimately will always fight back when they feel belittled about their privacy it's not going to be an easy battle but at least the battle's happening and i think that brings progress okay uh it just uh, another item to put on your calendar on june 11th you're going to be doing a webinar mark uh talking about two-factor authentication and the PCI DSS, Data Security Standard 3.0, which is the latest version of PCI. Um, talk to us a little bit about what you're going to be talking about and also where people can tune into this webinar. Absolutely. So um, Josh DeMont, who's the principal at Securacy and is himself a PCI QSA, um, him and I will be chatting about kind of the changes from PCI DSS 2 to PCI DSS 3. You know, it's been a few years since 2 came out, and we want to talk about not only just two-factor related changes, but also some of the bigger picture items that, being a, a PCI QSA, Josh can bring to the table and really give insight. 2015 is ultimately when this, uh, this new version of PCI DSS goes into effect. So organizations are just now ramping up to think about, hey, what do we have to change? What, is, what does our environment look like? Where are we going to go by 2015 that we might have to be considerate about these, these uh, situations? Um, so hopefully we'll give a lot of knowledge transfer to our audience and also talk about, of course, how you know, two-factor uh, not only helps to reduce the scope a little bit with PCI uh, compliance, but also um, you know, PCI DSS 8.3 specifically calls out having you know, two-factor Im- implementation for remote access in terms of your in-scope PCI environment. So if you're looking as an organization to solve your PCI woes, we're definitely here to help and not just uh, with knowledge, but also obviously with Duos technology to do so. We actually had a blog post that we put up. If you want to go to duosecurity.com slash blog, there's a blog post from May 15th that has more details about the blog uh, or about the webinar with a sign-up link and the webinar is completely free. So 1 p.m. Eastern on June 11th. Please uh, come join us, ask some questions and get some knowledge from a real PCI QSA without paying for it. Hey, Mark. As always, thank you so much for coming in and speaking to us at the Security Ledger. Great. Thanks so much for having me, Paul. Have a good week, everyone. Uh, We always love having you.